on uh, three, two, one. We are speaking with uh, the one and only Steve Hackett. The new album is Under a Mediterranean Sky, uh, out later in January. And uh, joining us, as always, is co-host Alan Niven. But uh, Steve, as we say in Montreal, uh, bonjour. How are you? Uh, very good. Very good. Very good. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm okay, considering I just got over... Uh, major surgery, but I'm but I'm I'm all right. You know, I'm I'm recovering at a at a fast rate of knots, so I'm uh, I'm doing okay. What did you have done, Steve? Well, I had some kidney surgery, and um, oh, I've still got I've still got a full complement of kidneys, but I had to have a cyst removed, and uh, and so um, it's it's a very it's a very strange thing, but um, I want to get on with guitar playing, and at the, the moment. Uh, I'm not allowed to pick up anything heavy, so um, Les Pauls are out of the question at the moment. But hopefully in January, well, you have, you'll have to stick to a hollow body for the moment. I know, isn't that true? So I am playing a little bit of acoustic, but um, you know, I'm I'm taking a break. I've been punishing my my fingers um, for so many years and trying to be so productive. I think that at the moment um, I have various projects backed up and I've been releasing them one after the other and so the latest is this uh, acoustic orchestral thing and um and then I, I'm I'm recording rock stuff at the moment and um, um that's more star studied and guested and all that sort of stuff so um but I love I love nylon guitar and classical stuff and orchestras and um so that's part of what I do um well I can tell you one let thing let me ask you Steve I was, yeah, I was, I was going to say, let, me, let me ask you, Steve. Yeah. Um, it was probably a ridiculous question to somebody of, of, of your abilities, but as a guitar player, did you ever find that sometimes taking a little break helped you when you felt you were plateauing, that you'd hit a certain level and you put the guitar down for two or three weeks and then you pick it up after that and and you're up at another level. Did you ever find that? Well, I tell you what I, what I have found. On days when I, I found it difficult to write, um, I would sometimes say, I'm not going to write today. I'm going to stop. And, and that was normally very helpful because it meant that anything I did or came up with, it was the equivalent of coming up with it in downtime on, on my own terms in a way and I, because I didn't expect anything from myself that usually meant that I would be hugely more productive um, there were times when I didn't play for a month you know but it would be sitting in the corner goading me and I'd be thinking you know why am I getting so fearful to pick this thing up I don't have the fear anymore um, I just think there'll be some days I'll play and other, other days when I won't and that's just the way it is and most of the time when I'm feeling fit um, I'll put in uh, quite a few hours on the thing. But I think you do need to have a break. You can do the play every day thing. I've had that conversation, um, you know, with classical musicians, you know, are, are trying to keep up. Uh, Nigel Kennedy, for instance, said, you play every day, right? And I said, yeah, you know, pretty much that's what I do. But I noticed he had a wound in his neck. I said, did you have an accident? And he just sort of coughed a bit. And it's just the pressure of the violin digging into his neck looks like someone had taken a chisel 
to him personally that day. And, um, uh, you know, it's the price of it, I guess. Uh, Don Henley once said something to me, which I thought was uh, uh, a turn of, of, of Texan wit. I was teasing him that it was taking him a long time to come up with a new, new solo record. And he looked at me with a jaundiced eye and he said, you know, sometimes you got to stop dropping the bucket in the well and let it refill. Yes, I think that's true. Um, uh, and uh, allow it to refill you. Um, yes. To draw back, I think, is a very good thing. I think that the songwriting is a very passive process. You have to remind yourself what you like and how you think you can add something to all the great deeds that others have done, those who've preceded you, all the heroes, all those guitar heroes. I mean, um, it can be daunting if you allow it to get to you. Um, but then you'd, you'd, you'd know, you know, you've managed a great band by the sound of it. And um, um, so I'm sure you know all about those moments of doubt that people have, or, or perhaps, perhaps it's the case that, you know, it's wonderful when I, I come across guys who are supremely confident and know that they're going to lead their band to, to glory after glory or into the valley of death road, the 600 or whatever it is. On the other hand, you know, it's, there are people who are, who are unstoppable, but you don't well, necessarily those, the, want to work with them all the time. Those geniuses. Steve, don't we call those people lead singers? Uh, well, I think that, that, that lead singers often have that because they have to be the instrument themselves. I'm not knocking lead mm. singers. I think there's an extra pressure on them and it, it helps to be supremely confident to do that. Um, but luckily, we all need each other. Lead singers need lead guitarists and great keyboard players and sax players and, and even humble triangle players. We all need each other. And, and even managers, right? Uh, let me just quickly get over to... to <laughs> even Even managers. Uh, under a Mediterranean sky. Now, the, the way it's been, it's been explained to me is that, and, and I've had a chance to, to hear the, the songs that were played, but it is, you're capturing Joe and yours tours or, or, or vacations around the Mediterranean. So, so does this make this sort of a concept album or is it just an, you were inspired by the Mediterranean? Um, I had been inspired uh, literally by all of those areas. So it's a loose concept. Um, it's meant that we can look at some of the more exotic areas around the, uh, the Mediterranean and work with instruments that perhaps um, you might not um, include in, in on a nylon classical guitar album. Um, so it, it's wider than that. So yeah, we got the Daduk from Armenia and, and the and the Ud from uh, you know the Arabian Ud, the fretless lute. I'm, I'm using that as well, and, and, and a Peruvian charango and um, some great players, violin, viola, uh, soprano, sax, flutes this kind of thing. Um, so uh, it becomes an orchestrated thing, but um, in a way, I think it's, it's, the, it's the lockdown thing. Um, we've traveled to all those areas and we were due to go and visit Borneo and see caves and, and, and meet orangutans and, and various things. And 
we just couldn't do it. We were halfway through an American tour and America closed down around our ears. The rest of the world closed down. So I got back home, finished off a, a, a live album, got a mix from Stephen Wilson for a surround thing. Uh, I got uh, an autobiography out. Uh, and then the next day, literally thought, well, we could get on with this acoustic thing, this acoustic um, stroke orchestral thing. Um, no need to stop because I want to be in touch with all those fans that I suddenly I'm letting down because I can't change what the pandemic is doing, that you know, the, the worldwide emergency that we're all faced with. But but what I can do is I can do some live playing, um, put out some videos of just you know Steve at home and um, 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 do track commentaries on things that are that people have loved before and they sent in their requests so we did that and so uh, you know one tries to keep it coming uh, to visit people but it, it's it's a virtual journey on this album to all those places that were wonderful that we'd visited like Egypt the, the trip up the, up the Nile that Joe and I did um, and it lingers and stays with you. The desert was was hugely influential on the album that I've that I've just made. You know what they say about the desert, don't you, Steve? They say that the seeker will find that which he seeks in the desert. Some individuals that only took forty days and forty nights. People like me, I live in the desert. It's taken me a lot longer, but it's true. Which desert do you live in, and where are you? I'm in Arizona. Where are you, Steve? Right. Well, I'm in I'm in Teddington in, in London, England. You know, Greater London. Um, but I love the desert. I love Arizona. I love all of that. You know, Arizona, Navajo Nation, Utah, all of that. But you know, I visited in recent times Petra uh, and in Jordan and and Egypt awesome. and, and Morocco and and um, that kind of Middle Eastern um, influence. Um, is there, I mean, I suddenly find myself walking into a shop and they would say to me, yeah, Robert Plant was here, you know, and um, and this is the stuff I was showing him. And so you meet a guy, be doing a Dar Burka solo. I record it on my phone and um, I think, well, you know, isn't, isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? That's informing rock. And at the same time, um, these scales are as ancient as as the desert sands, and um, it, it isn't going to go away. Uh, it's it's eternal, you, and I love the desert for that reason. Do you have film to go with this music, Steve? Uh, yeah, uh, um, there are some videos that, that that go with it. We did a um, there's a Spanish inspired track because each of the tracks on the album um, are about different places around the Mediterranean. So one of the tracks is called Andalusian Heart. And if you know the music of Rodrigo and um, um, Concerto de Aranguez, famous classical guitar piece, ironically made famous by Miles Davis with his Sketches of Spain uh, exploration, um, he's the one who popularized that piece of music. But I took an influence of, of all things Spanish and we did a track called Andalusian Heart. And we did a video um, um, of that. And there's a video of, 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 of Egypt and We've mixed things up, you know, um, uh, there's that, there's also a bit of live playing. So I have, I have three videos to go with, with this. A lot of it's very homegrown, um, uh, very, very relaxed. Um, sometimes it's wandering in and out of Egyptian tombs. 
sometimes it's the desert. Um, it's it's a lot of wonderful places that, um, that, that it it just gets to you. It haunts you. You can't not write. I mean, when I'm in Egypt, um, my my notepad is out the whole time. And the first time I saw the Sphinx and I was standing next to it, I just had the notepad out the whole time, and I was. I thought, you know, this this thing is like an amplifier. There is no more exotic place on Earth. Maybe for the locals, it's a bit like oh, Big Ben up the road, or um, you know, to, to live in, in in Washington and go past the White House endlessly. But for the rest of us mortals and travelers, to to be standing next to this this thing, it was just singing to me the whole time, and I had to get it down on paper. Now, let me just ask it you. It had a quick... vibration for you, yeah. Sorry, that's two things. What what you were saying? You guys were. No, I, I was just asking. Did it seem to have some sort of sense of vibration for you? Um, it well, it it it, it resonated with me um, in terms of um, everything that I was looking for, and I've been out in the expanses of the desert in in other places. I've been to Wadi Rum, for instance, and and, and Petra. Wadi Rum is where Lawrence of Arabia was, and you know, you're out in the same places and, and just drinking tea with, with with the locals, with the Bedouin under the stars. And even that is hugely magical um, to have a fire yes. that's giving heat. And you've been there yourself. You've done it. And isn't it wonderful? Well, I, I live in the desert. And when I first moved out into the desert, I moved well away from the nearest town, 25 miles away, and right. was totally off the grid. And the the most impact it had on me was that I realized that when I was living in LA, my perspective was always horizontal, Steve. I was always looking in front of me and traveling fast and occasionally yeah. forgetting to look over my shoulder. When yeah. I got to the desert, my perspective became vertical, which had an, a huge impact on my consciousness and thinking. Well, it sounds like you've, if you haven't done it already, perhaps you should write a book about that because it's hugely interesting. Changed perspectives are very, very good. Yes. And I love reading books about people who not only travel but are affected uh, by that. So I think, you know, we make inner journeys, we make outer journeys. And, um, and sometimes you have to be still um, to achieve a new, a new perspective. So that, certainly the lockdown has done that. I've I've been, you know, we have a little garden out, out the back and um, we feed the birds every day and, and foxes come along and squirrels and sometimes they get along just fine. Other times they don't. But it's lovely to have the world come to you instead of thinking, yes, I've got to go that's, off and um, climb the Empire State Building or something. Um, that that has oh, become I, my life. I sit and feed the squirrels every day, but I just I just want to take up on one thing. You mentioned Stephen Wilson, and of course he worked yeah. on your Premonitions album or a Premonition box set, I should say, I mean, a massive yes. box set. Yeah. yeah. What does Stephen Wilson bring to a recording? Because he he does these incredible remixes and remasters, and he yeah. is the master of these remasters. I mean, he just when you know that Stephen Wilson's touched it, you just go, oh, okay, this is serious. Um, well, he's he's basically twenty years younger than me, but I think he's an old soul in a, in, a, in a younger body. So I think that spiritually, he's at one with the kind of music that um, I was doing when I was young, when it when it was contemporary to work with mellotrons and and synths um, b b before those instruments became Jurassic. Um, he, he he loves that. So you know, he sees 
what I might see as Jurassic, he sees as classic. And um, so he's a very clever guy. He's a very fast thinker. Um, he works very, very quickly. Um, I've known people to spend two months on a surround mix. He'll spend two days on it and get it to work wonderfully. But it's a bit like a master chef, isn't it? That's how it, that's how it functions. So um, luck, luckily he became um, a young fan. He said, one of the things that I did, he heard when he was 11 years old and um, it showed him that, although he didn't use these words, that you could, you could go pan genre, you could have lots of different styles of music. Um, and for him, I think it must have, you know, he wasn't even thinking commercially. When you're 11, you're not, you're not thinking about that. Um, but I, I've always kind of pitched my tent in the, um, in the camp that says, you know, um, if something is obscure, that's all the more reason why you should go for it. Um, it would Eric Clapton have made it if it wasn't reviving blues and reinvigorating it? Um, you know, that was... Um, you, you know, that, that, that was a bywater. That was all a backwater, all that stuff at the time. But he followed his heart and he did what he did with it. And my, my relationship to classical music or the idea of um, taking something forward that, that owes something perhaps to all those wonderful masters of the arcane art of orchestration and all the rest, the Russians, the Germans, the, the French, the Impressionists, all that, and try and inform what I do with some of that and and um so um rock and roll shoulders gets broadened and other, other times i'll do something that's much more purist which is this this kind of album i i i do it for myself um but I, I like to think that we might be able to take people on that journey into the mediterranean because they can't visit it at this point in time and um perhaps those places will beckon and their literal journeys will ensue um, hopefully, we to, hopefully we get to uh, touch on on Greece and Italy and um, and and many many other areas, Spain, France. Um, there's so much that the Mediterranean has, uh, has got to offer. It's a pan, it's a pan cultural album in that in that sense, um, pan genre, pan cultural, but it's essentially acoustic. And and just before I, I turn it over to Alan real quick, in terms of presentation, because you were doing the tour, selling England by the pound, you were you were doing this stuff, it all got you know shut down. How do you get this album to fans? Do, do you do a streaming thing? Do you do a whole bunch of YouTube videos and they just can go experience it? How, how because it, the album's going to come out, and we're going to yeah. have the the audio representation. But how does yeah. the fan? get that visual other other than closing their eyes and having to imagine it like we did 50 years ago well um you know um music can be fascinating when there's no live show live shows can be wonderful of course um but i seem to recall when we all thrilled to sergeant pepper there was no video that the music was sufficiently visual in itself of course i'm going back to 1967 which is before a lot of your um your audience is 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 born um but the palpable sense of excitement as you got to hear tracks in disparate locations and found out later that that track that you just heard was done by you know the fab four um they had the ability to uh, reinvent themselves so um Yes, we're in a post-MTV world, um, but somehow 
I feel that it's important that the music itself should have enough vitality that it's not dependent on having a an all singing, all dancing thing. I mean, when I heard the work of Andres Segovia, Segovia plays Bach, okay? Um, I had no idea that that album wasn't made yesterday. I heard that in 1965. I found out later that some of those recordings were made in the 1920s and the 1930s. For me, it was immediately eternal. Right. And, um, I know it sounds like I'm being, um, oh, I sound like Batman here, getting t too damn serious about it. But, um, you know, um, it doesn't, you don't have to be a rock and roll purist. You can cast a, an ear or an eye over these other, these other areas and, and um, you might just like it. You know, someone by accident slips it on and you go, oh, who the hell was that? Um, what's that all about? Why am I, you know, the electric guitar is essentially a, a single line instrument most of the time um, for all the guitar heroics, but the nylon guitar, uh, it's got a lot more possibilities. Let's put it this way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a whole band if you, can, if you can bother to get your hands around it. Absolutely. And, uh, Alan, go ahead. As, as, as regards that, uh, Steve, um, at the risk of sounding like, you, you know, an, an old grump in his corner, um, <laughs> I, 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 w I would have to say that for me, MTV was an obligation that had to be dealt with. And my concern about it was, for me, music is an hourly experience meant to stimulate the imagination of the listener. Yes. So for me, me, music creates images within my head that I don't want literalized on a screen that much. Yeah. And the greatest music is always timeless. It's like a good book that speaks a truth to us that... Yes. It's timeless and, and goes beyond the moment and the era in which it's written. Well, I think we're speaking rock and roll heresy here, but sometimes we need uh -huh. to commit her heretical acts in order to get back to basics and go, well, actually, uh, I never saw a video that featured Tchaikovsky's music. Um, right. And this is the crux, isn't it? Greatness is... Um, is something else. There's a quote from Marcel Proust, if I can get it right, which is talking about addressing two extremes at the same time. I can't remember the exact quote, but a great you show your greatness by addressing two extremes simultaneously. And um, that's a very difficult thing to get right in art, it seems to me, because it, there has to be that twin thing going on that, that maybe it's the male female principle I don't know what it is, but what is it that ignites that spark? You know, that something that reinvigorates the blues, like, you know, Joe Bonamassa. You know, By the way, he, we just interviewed Joe Bonamassa yeah. about an hour ago, and he's told us to please tell you hello from him. And I, you, Oh, you, how, how lovely. That's very yes. nice. Well, I've got a lot of time for him. I think he's a great player. I love, I'm using this word to reinvigorate the blues and he's, um, you know, don't just listen to me. I mean, he's appeared on stage with Eric Clapton, you know, and um, uh, I think he's a great player um, and he does surprising things. Um, and and for, for progressive listeners, of course, they will say that, well, blues is not 
um, is not surprising because it doesn't have enough time signatures in it or chords. But in a way, you know, it's a, it's like talking about Indian raga music. You're not listening to it for its for its for its chords uh, or its harmony. You're, you're there's something else, and, and there's the way that he seems to centre and come up with um, something as if you're hearing it for the first time. So you're using the Dorian scale, the blues scale, um, and, and, and thrilling to it. So I know that it's absolutely right for a progressive audience. So people can be led to it, you know. Um, uh, we, we've got to eradicate prejudice against genres and times and, 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 and locations. I fully agree. Alan, go ahead. I was going to say that that's something I do miss about England, Steve, in that uh, when I was a nipper, yes. um, and, and I got a, got a slightly better perspective of it after being, being here in America for a long time. But if you remember back in the day, we had NME, Melody Maker sounds and so on and so forth. And there was a greater sense of eclecticism and a, a yes. greater openness to things that were different. And of course, I comprehended it when I got to America, where because of its continental size, everybody was focused on selling one record to everybody, whereas England was small. So the way to be profitable was to sell every record to one person. And I miss that eclecticism. Well, I think that's... You know, it's it's a very interesting perspective. All of that. Um, uh, you know, I survived in an industry where, to some extent, I've been swimming uphill all my life, um, trying to change people's minds about what music is is capable of and what they might enjoy. Um, I guess that started with with Genesis for me and I said some very unpopular things when I first joined them thinking oh well I'll stick around for a year and then they'll then then they'll fire me but sometimes I think you have to be unpopular to be popular you've got to be honest and um, I think that for, for music to have personality you know sometimes you've got to I know I'm mentioning Eric Clapton quite a lot tonight and I I wouldn't normally do this but the fact that he walked out on, on the Yardbirds who were doing rather well and having hit singles in order to join an obscure band run by by John Mayle. But the quantum leap in terms of the quality of his playing and, and import, and um, it, it, it almost seems as if, you know, the god of music smiled on him and says, oh, yes, and so you shall. The fairy godmother steps in and gives him sustain, distortion, perfect finger vibrato, the quantum leap that was his playing at, at that point. And uh, of course we all thrilled to his touch. Um, and wasn't that, that, that was a marvelous thing, but he took a step down. And, um, and so I think, you know, if you're going to lead a personal crusade, um, that's what you've got to do. Not everyone's lucky enough to play with the Beatles and George Harrison, but um, I, I think, some of the people that I've got to work with over time um, were an absolute thrill for me. Like working with the late, great, um, um, I was going to say Richie Havens, for instance, soon after I left Genesis. And, and, and the lessons that I learned working with him, um, you know, he was, a, he was a man who'd, in terms of the world stage, 
he, he comes on, he's the first guy on stage at Woodstock. Why was he the first act? It was because he had a pal who had a helicopter and he was the only artist on site at that point. And he said, I can't go on, I've just got an acoustic guitar. And they said, you've got to go on because there's no one else. And he walked out on that stage and he said, as far as the eye could see, there were people. And then, and of course, played marvellously for God knows how long, two and a half hours or whatever it was. And, you know, making a lot of it up on the spot. And they loved him for it. And it's on camera and it's wonderful. But he said to me, I made a promise that I would, I would play a gig every weekend somewhere, wherever it was. Now, that might have been playing to a, a jazz club in Camden or maybe a room of five people. But, but I know that he honoured that, that promise. So I don't think it was the quality, or rather, should we say, it wasn't the, the quantity of people that he was playing to, but it was the quality of his performance. And when, when we hooked up, he was supporting Genesis. We had supported him in the States. And he was supporting us when we were, we were doing three nights at Earl's Court, riding high. And um, his keyboard player approached me. And he said, oh, you know, would you like to meet Richie? I said, yeah, I've never had a conversation. And I, I said to him, um, I'm so sorry that the reaction of the audience was in no way parallel to the, to the quality of your performance. And he shook my hand for a very long time. I invited him to dinner and he was the one who said, I think we should work together, do something. And, um, and it was a magical experience working with that man. Um, uh, divine, I would say. Um, a man who could do it with just an axe sitting down. The man, his guitar, his voice spoke volumes. And um, Steve, Steve, yeah. let me let me ask you about sure. charisma. Now, if I remember correctly, that was was that not Genesis's label back there in the early days? Uh, yes, it was. It was run by uh, Tony Stratton Smith, who was. Um, an extraordinary character, a man very much of his passions, and he would sign things. Um, some of them the were eclectic. Do you remember him? You know, I never met him, but my I, I never met him. But my my sense of charisma was that uh, we're not making pop singles here. We're going to do interesting things. Yes, that's right. I mean, he would he would sign up. Um, Monty Python and, and fund a film. Um, yeah, crazy, right? You know, um, he signed uh, Sir John Betjeman reciting poems, um, R.D. Lang, the, the, the psychiatrist, um, and Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne were having hit singles. Um, Genesis didn't really have hit singles en masse until afterwards, although we had, we had a hit with one song, I Know What I Like, in 1973 on Selling England by the Pound. But in, in the main, we were making albums in that pre-MTV era where we had fans who were saying, if you ever go on top of the pops, we'll never talk to you again. And that was it. Oh, it yes. There used to be that day when we used to talk about underground bands. Yes, that's and right. If it, and if it, yeah. yeah, and if it wasn't an underground band, then it wasn't interesting and it wasn't hip. It was for the masses. That's right, and, and and it's probably the reason why Led Zeppelin um, had to be a band of the people and, and would never ever, to my knowledge, never released a hit single unless they had their arm twisted 
um it was you know it's about albums it's about the show it's about musical integrity you get the real thing and um i think that the 1980s um obviously the goalposts has shifted um and mtv um it, it was a big change it was you know uh, many of us were fighting for our ideals and our, our musical lives out there at that time and um I had a band with Steve Howe, and luckily we had a we had a hit single. We had GTR. We had one hit single, um, and uh, you could say, well, it, it, it was a one-hit wonder. But when I look back, I don't do a show that's. I've had three hit singles in my in my life, but I usually don't do any of those songs um, because I think that that the real stuff is. Is something else. Yes, if I'm doing the whole of Selling England by the Pound, revisiting a Genesis album in its entirety, which I did last year, um, we did I Know What I Like as part of it, but it was part of a greater greater picture. Uh, but um, um, uh, yeah, th this, th this, this is musical suicide. Rock managers are not talking to me anymore. What are you saying? You're not doing your hit Well, singles. Alan's talking to you right now. Um, he is, he is, he is. Uh, he yeah. is. It's, the, it's a bit like, you know, can The Who play a show and not do My Generation? And don't they just love it? I'm sure, you know. Um, um, but before we have to wrap up, I just want to ask you one question, because we, we've had this debate over the years about finger tapping, but you are an innovator. You were one of the first. How did you? How did that come to you? Was it something you were just sitting in the bedroom and, and you started tapping? Or did you see somebody? Was there a guy at a local pub doing it? Where where did that come to you? Well, I was I was living at home with my parents at the time. Uh, my first marriage had just failed, and I was back home with the folks. And um, one day, I was just sitting down on the bed, plugged into a little amp, and um, I wanted to play a triplet figure, and and I couldn't play it fast enough on on two strings or three, and I decided to play it on one by hammering on and off. And I thought, ah, oh, if I could master this, it's got other possibilities. And I started to use it with live solos on uh, Musical Box, for instance. And as I started to use tapping on the guitar, um, Tony Banks um, would sometimes do a harmony to me. So we'd have uh, we'd have a guitarist who was sounding like a, a keyboard player and a keyboard player who was trying to sound like a guitarist. And, and, and that created a kind of show. It was great. Alan, um, before we leave, uh, any last questions? Oh, well, Steve was also somebody uh, who was out there and visibly doing things called sweeps. Oh, my God, you know, all the very, very heavy bands of the contemporary times or recent times. I mean, Steve, you unleashed there, definitely. <laughs> it's it's funny. There was one solo I did on um, Selling England by the Pound. I, mean, I started doing tapping in 71, uh, but in 73, when John Lennon said Genesis was one of the bands he was listening to, which is my proudest moment in rock and roll, um, uh, the very first track on that was called Dancing with the Moonlit Night. And on the guitar solo, um, it's got tapping, um, sweep picking, it's got octave jumps and in a way um, it's a kind of prototype for shredders 
And yeah. uh, I think that if every solo I'd ever done was like that, um, it would become very boring very, very quickly because you can only take a certain amount of speed. Um, it's, you know, I think it's important to have different dynamics and different speeds and not forget about, about the music. Don't forget that the Beatles, Lennon McCartney and Harrison were coming up with songs that, that were not technique driven. The expertise was all in the, the little vignettes that became wonderful songs about flashpoints in people's lives, whether it was young love or, or the end of a woman's life. Uh, uh, you know, in, in practically two and a half minutes, you've got Eleanor Rigby or She's Leaving Home or I'm the Walrus. I mean, just incredible stuff and and these these are pop songs and and yet somehow you know it's borrowing from classical music it's borrowing from show tunes it's borrowing from folk music um it's extraordinarily eclectic and the most commercial music and you have to remind yourself when you go into abbey road if you ever and i'm sure you visited in your time you go in and you see a gold album on the wall as you go in to do whatever you're going to do in there and you realise it's just going to be a footnote to the Beatles, and you see a gold album on the wall, and it says uh, to the Beatles for for sales of a million million. <laughs> nice round figure, of course, but you're never going to beat that with your latest opus or your next ditty, and it's it's humbling. But you know um, that's it. What they were doing was um, they were mainstreaming from the world. Suddenly, it was hip to come from New Delhi or wherever it was, it was it was no longer London was no longer the only swinging centre on, on earth. It was it was suddenly suddenly world music was born, or so it seems to me anyway. And, and uh, of course, the spirit of that is what one tries to honour in one's own humble fashion. Well, absolutely. And, and as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup, Alan. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, très bien. And by the way, I loved your show in Montreal. Was it last year or two years ago? It was fantastic. Uh, Alan. Well, I'm glad you loved that. And it's been great talking to you both. Yes. That's really fantastic. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I look yeah. forward to seeing you play sometime. Yes, that would be wonderful. And meanwhile, enjoy the desert and enjoy Montreal. Yes. And uh, it's it's great just looking forward to being out there. Again, have I got Montreal right? Am I right? Or yes, I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in Montreal, and uh, I Fantastic. saw you at uh, Place des Arts. Uh, Place right, des Arts. Yeah. Right. We actually got to uh, to meet backstage. That was my proudest Fantastic. moment to get a picture with you, so Wonderful. I was thrilled. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Anyway, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys, and um, hasta la vista. Be well. Oh, yes, and uh, yeah, quickly, under well. a Mediterranean well. sky, folks. Uh, Steve Hackett, under a Mediterranean sky, out in January. Uh, merci tout le monde. Have a good day. Cheers. Merci bien.